بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ولي الصالحين واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله النبي الصادق الامين صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنتي واقتفى باثره الى يوم الدين السلام عليكم ورحمه الله and uh, thank you all for uh, making the effort this evening because it is quite late to come and attend uh, this uh, session of uh, on the voyage into Ibn al-Qayyim's world. And today we're on the fourth stop. Today we are with Kitab al-Salah uh, on prayer or of prayer. And uh, straight away, uh, the title doesn't tell us much, right? Uh, on prayer or of prayer. As-Salah, Kitab al-Salah. And there are variations of this title that I'll come to in a minute. But the first thing, given that this is the title, the first thing that one ought to do is explore or inspect the contents page. And this is why many scholars, and I remember notably Mahmoud Shakir, rahimahullah. those of you who don't know Mahmoud Shakir, Mahmoud Shakir is one of the great scholars of the last, uh, of the, of the last century. And uh, he was, uh, yeah, and he was a, a comprehensive scholar, but his focus was on the, uh, on the Arabic language. It isn't, he says, he speaks of himself. He said that he read, Lisan al-Arab, Ibn Mandur's Lisan al-Arab, the encyclopedia, the, the sort of uh, lexicon or dictionary, when he was 13. And of course, his brother is Ahmed Shakir. I'm sure some of you have heard of Ahmed Shakir. And he hails from a scholarly family. He would say, rahimahullah, that the key, the miftah to every book is the contents page. Miftah kullu kitabin fihris jami'ah. Faqra al-fihris qabl kulli shay. Read the fihris before anything else. We have a book here called the Salah. Actually, let me turn on the camera because I uh, the... Um, the what do you call it the share screen here we go here we go perfect okay yep inshallah that uh, you can see all of that so uh give me a thumbs up again please if you can see that so here all we have is kitab al-salah and it doesn't tell us much more right so what we're going to do the first thing we're going to do is go straight to the contents page and I don't know I'm, why people, why Arab publishers still, many of them insist on putting the, the fihris at the end. So we have the fihris ayat, hadith, we don't want that. We actually want the contents uh, themselves. So here we are. Um, and then that will give us a just uh, a broad indication of what we're going to be sort of, what this book contains. Okay. Uh, oh, here we are. Perfect. طيب. So, uh, all we know so far is Salah. We don't know. Is it Salah on the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? Is it a book of Salawat, like these Adhkar books? Is it Salah, uh, how the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam prayed? Is it Hukum and the Hukum of the one who abandoned Salah? Is it, uh, what is it about? The contents page will tell us. So, this book was written uh, as a response to a question that Ibn al-Qayyim was asked. Ibn al-Qayyim was asked, okay. What is the ruling on the one who abandons Salah? And if he is to be punished, is he to be punished as a uh, murtad? Or is he uh, punished uh, as a had? We're going to come to that difference in a moment. That's the question that was asked of him. He then proceeded to answer this question in this 500 or 400 page work. So the first thing he talks about is the first mas'ala. It contains 11 masail. This book. The first masala that he discusses is 
the uh, sin, the enormity of the sin of abandoning salah. He then moves on to discuss the khilaf on that. Every single issue in this, uh, in these, every single one of these 11 masail is an issue of khilaf. Interestingly, Ibn al-Qayyim does not make clear his position on some of these masail. He keeps it at, as, as saying, this is an issue of khilaf. Sometimes he gives indications as to, I support this view. And sometimes he actually does say, this is my view. But overall, many of the time, many, in, uh, in fact, almost all the occasions, you just come across, you think, okay, he's laid out the khilaf, but he's not made his position on this clear. Why that is, I'm not sure. What we do know, or one thing that I've sort of been able to tell from this, uh, from this book, is that this is more, very, very likely to have been written at an early stage of his, uh, writing career, if you want, okay? And the reason why I say that, Wallahu alam, is because at no point in this book does he tell us, does he reference any other work. Every book so far, Fawaid, Al-Dawa, Dawa, and Al-Wabil Al-Sayyib, each of those works he references, he says, oh, and we have discussed this issue elsewhere, and we have covered this issue elsewhere, and we have tackled this issue in some other place. In this book, he doesn't reference a single other book. Which tells me at least, Wallahu alam, uh, that this was an early, early book, possibly one of his earliest works. The other indication, the other reason I say that as well, is because while reading this book, Ibn al-Qayyim's language is sometimes, I hate to use the word provocative, but sometimes he's sort of, when he disagrees with somebody, he's sort of saying, rhetorically, he's saying, look, come, come, let me show you the, the right, the, 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 the haqq on this issue or the correct view on this issue. I don't, from my experience of Ibn Qayyim, he doesn't do that elsewhere. He doesn't really do that elsewhere. Here he does that a bit. So that's another indication. And people mature and people change and people, their language, they realize maybe I was a bit harsh at one point of time. I can tone down a little bit. Khair, inshallah. Back to my point. We have 11 masail. We've covered the first masail. The second masail, that the person who is to be killed, whether he gets killed hadden or riddatan, as an apostate or as had is only to be killed once he has been invited repeatedly to to perform the salah طيب. the third masala is okay how many prayers must one abandon to be regarded as a tariq as, an, as someone who has abandoned salah one two three four what if he only prays Juma? what if he only prays Laytul qadr is he still abandoning the salah that's another issue that he covers of course every one of these issues, Ibn al-Qayyim deconstructs it and then deals with each element alone. And then sometimes, and sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he reassembles the answer. This book, you couldn't walk, read this book, strangely enough, you couldn't read this book and walk away with a conclusive answer that Ibn al-Qayyim believes X, Y, and Z regarding each of these messiah. He is, he is he's brilliant, and Ibn al-Qayyim is brilliant at presenting the khilaf on issues. He goes deeply into that. He presents you many evidences, many arguments of both sides. And one of the things he is, Ibn al-Qayyim, if we learn something from Ibn al-Qayyim, it's that he is very honest and objective in presenting the views of the opponents. And that's always a mark of, uh, that's a sincer sincerity. At the end of the day, we're in pursuit of the truth. Um, sometimes he might slightly undermine but overall when you some when you read ibn al-qayyim ibn al-qayyim faithfully represents the views of his opponents in most cases and that's important um and you know you only know if you understand something once you are able to represent the views of your opponent better than they can represent it themselves 
So if you are able to represent the case of the person who disagrees with you on an issue better than they themselves, that's when you've that's when you know that I've actually finally understood this issue. Uh, so that's a measure. That's a test. Test yourself this way. Say, okay, I disagree with so and so. I can I present his case better than he does, or not? If I can't, then that there's a there's a short there's um we're still there's a lack somewhere in my understanding of the issue. Allah alam. Anyway. Whether the person who abandons salah, whether he is to be killed as a had, as a as a had, or as a as a ridda. I might as well get this out of the way now. The difference between had and ridda, of course, is had means that this person dies a Muslim. We have he is he is he is buried in the graves of the cemetery of Muslims. We do salah on him and so on. And we seek Allah we ask Allah to have mercy on him. Uh, and in the akhirah, he's still a Muslim. Whereas Ridda, of course, he none of that applies, and that's the difference between Had and Ridda. Um, uh, okay, do all one's good deeds are they nullified or are they nulled by abandoning Salah? Somebody has done other good deeds. If the fact that you just miss Salah, does that mean does that render all those good previous good deeds uh, uh, wasted? And that's based on many hadith like. The one, about, the one who abandons salah, it's as though he has wasted, uh, then all of his deeds have been wasted. Six mas'ala. Al-khilaf qabul salat al-layl al-mufawwata bi-nahar wa-aksahu. Tayyib, the one who abandons the salah uh, that is ought to be performed in the night and wants to perform it in the day. And the one who performs, abandons salah in the, uh, uh, the one who is uh, misses the salah in the day and which to perform at night this here is interesting because he discusses indulges the discussion in detail as to whether one can actually perform qada salah for those salah that he deliberately abandoned uh, the, as you can see i mean he goes into a lot of detail this is one of the very detailed discussions that he goes into uh sabia now he moves on to a slightly different discussion, which is regarding uh, whether uh, uh, his salah is valid uh, if he is able to perform it in congregation. Again, he goes into the question of is congregation prayer obligatory? Is it not obligatory? But then he moves on to something else, which is, is this is the sixth, uh, sorry, the eighth issue. Is the jama'ah, is the congregational prayer a condition or a prerequisite Condition of the validity of your salah, or is it just obligatory? Uh, and then he moves on to the ninth issue. Okay, so let's say that jama'ah is obligatory. Can one perform it at home, or must the congregation be established in the masjid? The tenth mas'ala that he covers is whoever what is the ruling and this is a very interesting discussion or detailed discussion he goes into what is the ruling on the one who prays a salah in a rushing in a very rushed manner uh, you know when animals peck that movement like just pecking like there's nothing no khushu or nothing is that what is the ruling on that salah is that salah uh, valid is it uh, is it legally acceptable and so on finally he ends with uh, the length or the manner in which the Prophet performed his prayers. And as you can see here, this discussion covers maybe 150 or so pages, or longer, in fact. Uh, this discussion, interestingly, for those who aren't able to read the Arabic book, there is a translation of um, a risala 
called Asrar uh, al-Salah. There is a translation of uh, 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 this essay called The Secrets of Salah, um, Inner Dimensions of Prayer. Now, that that book, I'm, I'm not sure as to how, uh, as to whether it's an independent work, because the these these guys, the guys in charge of this project, don't seem to think so. But it has appeared anyway. And you can find the translation if you Google Inner Dimensions of Salah. A lot of the stuff in this book, the hand, uh, where the discussion on how the Prophet ﷺ performed this prayer onwards, that a lot of that is replicated there. So you can have a look at that, read it in your own time, uh, if you're unable to read this book. I don't know. I, I, I think there is a translation of this book. But I haven't seen it. I think I've seen one done by one of these Egyptian translators, but I haven't seen one. Now, the title we have here, at least, Kitab al-Salah. Other renderings of this title is Kitab al-Salah wa hukum tariq al-Salah is another title. Uh, this, uh, there, there are a number of titles that this book, first, uh, this book appears uh, in. This appears to be the most accurate for a number of reasons that the indicate that the muhaqqiqin here indicate. Saying that, the first time I came across this book, uh, I remember it was Salah and Hukm Tariqah. So uh, Salah and the ruling on the one who abandons it. And this book was extremely, I mean, it's still uh, a popular work, but it was a very popular work, I think, at one point in time, partly because Al-Albani, rahimahullah, praised this book a lot. He said, you know, there's uh, many munaqashat uh, nafisa or something like that. Uh, and of course, uh, Al-Albari seems to have been influenced by this work somewhat. In his own book, The Prophet's Prayer Described, Sifat Salat al-Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi And also, and this is where it becomes more interesting, this book deals with the question of Iman. What makes somebody mu'min? What makes somebody a disbeliever? And... Uh, the re one of the reasons why this book was popular at one point, very popular at one point in time, is because one of the peren perennial discussions, and perennial means continuing discussions that among Muslim sects and among Muslim movements, is the question of what makes somebody a disbeliever. And, and uh, of that question, the question of to what extent are actions part of Iman? What, what, what does it mean? Uh, for one, or how does one become a disbeliever? Does can actions, mere action, lead to someone becoming a disbeliever, even though they claim to have faith? Uh, and of course, that ties into the discussion of salah, because salah is a physical action. Uh, this why is this interesting? Because of course, some Islamic movements believe that. Uh, certain Muslim governments or Muslim governments in general are not Islamic or not Muslim. They are apostates. But to prove that, they, there's a hurdle they have to overcome. And that hurdle is you have to demonstrate that you can become a disbeliever by way of action. Because these governments and these people, these leaders and so on, believe or claim or profess faith. You're saying they're disbelievers by virtue of certain actions they have done. So you need to prove then actions, abandoning certain actions or doing certain actions can lead to disbelief. So this discussion he covers in this book. Also, like slightly on a couple of occasions, the ruling on, um, uh, you know, ruling by other than what Allah has revealed and so on. Of course, this con discussion continues till today. It continues under a slightly different guise. Nowadays, the discussion between certain scholars and certain movements is the meaning of ibadah. What does it actually mean to 
uh, what does it mean to commit shirk in ibadah? Anyway, so that's where this book, at least for me, this is a personal anecdote. This is where this this book came into my uh, uh, my scheme of things. طيب. Uh, as I said, the book was written to answer some questions. Uh, it's a very technical book, very technical book. It's very hadith and uh, heavy, very hadith heavy, full of fiqhi discussions. Most of these discussions are, for our purposes at least, theoretical. Theoretical. In fact, in this session, while I will point out to a number of things that I've come across, I find interesting, maybe offer some comments. The most interesting bit for all of us, the most practical bit anyway, is the bit at the end, which is how did the Prophet ﷺ pray? What was the length of his prayer, the manner of his prayer, uh, 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 the, the physical aspects of his prayer as well? And you know, I sometimes believe that one of the indications, one of the proofs of Prophethood, Wallahu Alam, is that we Muslims or the Sahaba and uh, are so were so concerned, so uh, occupied, so interested in knowing the most meticulous details about how the Prophet ﷺ would pray. We know how he would move his fingers, how he would space his fingers, whether he would lift his hands first or put his feet down. We have all these details. I think there is nobody, no other person in this dunya that, that we have this much detail uh, about. You know, these sort of really meticulous details. Further to that, um, it goes to show how most how concerned Muslims were with the salah. How really concerned they were with the salah. Uh, so I said it's a very technical book. It deals with a lot of controversial issues. Most of these issues, in fact, all of them perhaps, are not that in, not that in, um, relevant to us. Why? Because we're not uh, governments, and we're not qudat, we're not judges, we're not. We don't have court systems, and you know. Uh, uh, to implement any of these things. So this is purely theoretical on the one hand, but more than that, more interesting, or more, what we are more concerned with is how did Ibn al-Qayyim write this book? What was his um, uh, sort of uh, his, uh, uh, his methodology? We are always interested in methodology. I'm not, we shouldn't be so interested in the results as long as we have the methodology cogent, intact, and makes sense. Because if you are following the correct methodology, in all likelihood, you will get to the correct answer. But if you don't have a methodology, if you don't have a model to which approach fiqhi issues, you're going to be all over the place. And that is one of the big problems that we have, at least for, as far as I can see, in all our fiqhi discussions today. It's all over the place. There is no method that, look, this is the system. First of all, look, is this an ayah? Is this a mas'ala, an issue? Where there is an ijma'a? Okay. Is this? Can we prove? Can we disprove this? Is undermine it in any way? Okay. Is this an issue where there is a nas that is qat'i, thubut wa dalala, both in its um, transmission and its in its implication? Yes or no? Okay. Is this issue ma'qul al-ma'na something that we can understand, or is it purely a ta'abudi issue, or something we can rational uh, rationalize, or purely ta'abudi? Okay. Uh, is this issue kulli or juz'i? Okay. Is this issue uh, uh, from the daruriyat? Where do we rank this issue? Uh, and then what, what is the ma'al or what is the consequence of this uh, of this opinion on the Muslim masses or in fiqh and so on? But we don't have, for the large part, we don't get taught a methodology, which is a, basically a way to think. And that's, if anything, usul al-fiqh ought to teach us how to think through these masai. Ibn al-Qayyim here 
sh shows us a lot of that. Okay, he shows us how he takes a question, he begins to deconstruct it. We'll see some of this, inshallah, in a moment. Um, what else should I add here? Subhanallah. Uh, uh, we won't, by the way, go into any detail regarding the so this mechanism or this model. We'll postpone those discussions, perhaps, inshallah, until we reach Alam al-Waqi'in, because um, uh, that's more that's a more suited place for it. That's um, that book was written for this purpose or for, for that purpose of how the methodology. Uh, one thing I will add here before we start going through the book quickly uh, is, uh, you know, one of the issues I would love to see somebody look and research or read into is the um, the history or the sort of uh, the history of leaving Salah. And the reason I say that is I came across a passage some time ago where a Nawi, rahimahullah, he writes in the sixth century. And no, he says, he says, you know, he basically says, like, do you think most people do salah five times a day? And that's, uh, you think, in your head, you think, so here, no, he knows, and this is in a Majmur somewhere, and no, he knows, or is under the impression that most people don't do salah five times a day. To me, when I first read this, I was like, this is incredible. So somebody to the research, if some of you, I know some of you are you know, researchers and so on, you know, the anthropology of abandoning salah, you know, how did, when did this phenomena come about? Not abandoning salah in the sense that, sorry, Anas bin Malik, rahimahullah, talks, or radiallahu anhu, talks about, in, in, and we'll come across maybe those quotes later, where, where he saw the, uh, Anas saw some uh, tabi'een, and he, he started weeping, and they said, why are you weeping, Anas? He said, because, you know, I don't see anything that these people are doing that we used to do. In other words, the salah it seems very strange to me. It's not the way we used to do salah. Uh, no, I'm talking about salah, actually abandoning salah, like not praying. You know, it'd be really interesting. Somebody could see when would this first issue first surface? When did this first issue come about? It's clear, obviously, that it came about, it must have come about in the time of the Sahaba. Why? Because for the fact the fact that there is an ijma mentioned, the fact that the uh, the scholar, the 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 tabi'in and the sahaba and the tabi'in discuss this issue means that it must have surfaced in that time because they're not going to discuss a theoretical issue. There must have been uh, a reason for this issue to surface. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in there. If any of you wish to ever take this up, or at least you know, sometimes you have these questions in your head, and uh, when you're reading, you'll come across a statement or an opinion or whatever, and you think, okay, let me note that down, you know, for future use. Khair, inshallah. I said this hadith, this book is very hadith heavy. We're going to see many, much of that. Um, طيب, let's go through the highlights, inshallah. And uh, feel free at any time any, uh, to sort of uh, interject or I think there are some comments actually. Let me see the chat. I couldn't have... Yes, somebody... <laughs> Ustad uh, Mustafa says that he couldn't help but feel that this book had little practical impact. Absolutely, absolutely correct. Um, yes, if you want to, uh, if you want to now, Mustafa, you're welcome to just raise your hand, inshallah. I completely agree with that. Um, for the most part, what we are interested in here is gleaning the methodology of Ibn uh, Al-Qayyim in, in presenting these issues and laying them out and uh, constructing a question, evidencing them, showing the arguments of the opponent, and so on. Uh, the rest, barring the last mas'ala, most of this book, 
has little practical implication. Mustafa, over to you. I've kind of got two uh, uh, comments just to quickly mention. I know that you mentioned that you think that Salah was abandoned in the time of the Sahaba. From when I remember reading through the book, he was saying that uh, when he claimed the Ijma' of the Sahaba, it was a uh, that no one uh, anchor uh, when Umar was passing away and said uh, his statement. Uh, I can't remember the exact words, but something along the lines of uh, whoever uh, uh, doesn't pray, then he has no health in Salah and that nobody anchor Ali. So I don't know whether whether that would, I mean that doesn't necessarily um, infer that people were leaving the salah at that time. It was obviously a concern, but um, you know m- maybe it could be argued it was it was still a theoretical uh, thing that Omar thought might have happened. Uh, like, oh, that's just maybe a thought. Uh, and uh, the second thing is I wanted to maybe if we could explore a little bit as to the whole theoretical point. Do you think Ibn al-Qayyim meant to write it as a theoretical discussion? Um, or do you think it was far more of a practical uh, uh, writing that he did? Obviously, as we said, we see it completely theoretical. But do you think Ibn al-Qayyim meant it to be theoretical or meant it to be applied? I'll begin with the second question. I think my impression is that this, this was... Uh, uh, a, a question uh, put Ibn al-Qayyim and Ibn al-Qayyim here was simply exercising his scholarly credentials it wasn't a uh, uh, it was a fatwa but he's not in a position of qada or anything this was a, a book for him it's almost like a first attempt at showing that this is my scholar, these are my scholarly capabilities because for a number of reasons. First of all, like I said, he it's a very early work from my I can tell, but also he doesn't discuss uh, with any um, uh, contemporaries this issue. It's purely a case of him engaging with the evidences and him engaging with the previous opinions. I think it's purely I think it's purely theoretical for a third reason as well, which is at no point does Ibn al-Qaim himself make his position crystal clear. So we've laid out this eleven masail. Ten of these masail, Ibn al-Qayyim doesn't tell, you don't walk away saying, knowing for sure what Ibn al-Qayyim actually believes. Now, there is one way around that, which is to go to Ibn al-Taymiyyah and say, okay, what does Ibn Taymiyyah say about all these issues? And the likelihood is Ibn al-Qayyim has adopted the same views. But here we don't get that. And another thing actually just come to mind is I think at no point does Ibn al-Qayyim refer to, Sheikh, to Ibn Taymiyyah in this book, which is interesting. So is it possible as as far as i remember and i hope i'm not wrong here uh, is it possible that this book was written before uh yeah any, uh I, I don't know i, I it's a good it's it's a, i'm not sure actually any could he have written this before even to passed away or i love adam um i'm not sure but that, that's all i know as far as that's all i can say as far as your second point is concerned the first point uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure what to say to that, to be honest with you. Uh, but I wouldn't see that the Sahaba would deliberate over an issue that was purely theoretical. The Sahaba clearly agreed there was some sort of ijma' that anyone who abandons Salah is not one of us. Wallahu um, Tayyib. Uh, let's go through some of the highlights, inshallah. And as I said, you're free to interject or raise your hands or comment at any point inshallah uh, Ibn al-Qaim tells us from the outset that no Muslims, dis- the Muslims do not disagree at all, 
that abandoning obligatory salah deliberately is from the greatest sins and the most major sins and that it is and this sin and then this is here interesting it says this sin that this sin is greater in Allah's sight than the sin of killing somebody, stealing, is committing zina, theft, and uh, drinking alcohol. طيب, this here is... Uh, is his Ibn Qayyim is not saying anything wrong here necessarily. It might strike, uh, might strike us as a bit of a strange statement. And uh, recently, a brother contacted me about this particular statement because he saw it circulating online. Uh, and he said, if somebody were to read this, he said, if my non-Muslim colleague was to read this, he'd think you're just crazy. Like, how is it that this salah abandoning a, a salah or salah, one salah or salah in totality, can be greater than say killing somebody? And I said, you know. The, the the issue that we face today, one of the big issues, one of the big problems, is that Ibn al-Qayyim is viewing this in a particular lens. A lens that puts Allah at the center of everything. In other words, Ibn al-Qayyim is saying, by disobeying Allah in this manner, by not giving thanks to Allah in the way that he has prescribed, i.e. via salah, you have committed a greater violation because you have... Uh, you're in. Uh, you're basically fighting or uh, or uh, challenging Allah Azza wa Jal. Today, and for the last four five hundred years in the Euro in European or Western context, we've had a paradigm shift. To speak of Allah in this way is seen as crazy. Today, Allah Azza wa Jal, and I just hate to say this, but Allah Azza wa Jal, or the God, I should say, has been relegated to a much lesser uh, to a periphery what matters today for most people is me how i feel it's the individual that matters why do you do a good deed in the past people say i do it for god's for god's pleasure i do it because i want god god's grace and mercy i do it because god asked me to do it i do it because i want god to be pleased with me nowadays you say i do it because it makes me feel good i do it because it's a good thing it's uh, people like it or whatever paradigm shift completely and so we have a problem here when we talk to people about deen when we operate according to this old scheme people are going to find what we say and what we believe weird and this is a challenge by the way i'm not saying i have answers to this but this is a challenge it's a challenge god has been derailed god has been relegated god doesn't matter for most people what matters is the individual so when you say to somebody abandoning a salah or abandoning salah is worse than committing sin or killing somebody it's clear they won't understand because the kufr and iman don't mean anything to them. This is a challenge, by the way. It's a challenge in how we propagate our deen, how we talk to people about our deen, this paradigm shift. And maybe one day we can go into it in some more detail. But Ibn al-Qaim here is not saying anything wrong. Ibn al-Qaim here is saying something that is completely right, that abandoning salah, disobeying Allah in that manner is greater than all these sins because you've disobeyed the creator, whereas all the other sins are to do with the creation. Allah alam. We can go into and yeah, some more details. And then Ibn al-Qaim straight away he says, so we've agreed, all Muslims agree that this is a major, major sin. Okay. They disagreed, however, on three things. How, uh, whether he is to be killed or not uh, in the court, by, by, by in the court and judiciary, 
how that is to be, to happen, as in the actual way it happens. And finally, whether he dies a disbeliever in that case or dies still a believer. Every single issue that Ibn al-Qayyim highlights in this book, as I have said, is an issue of khilaf. He says, okay, and then he presents the case, the, the evidence and the case of both sides. And then every, every case he'll break up, sometimes he'll break up a, further, a question further and singles out the, certain, the, the, the various elements of it and answers those, okay? Uh, I will point out something important here, something to do with methodology which is the mere fact that we have this extent, this, uh, this much khilaf on any issue is in and of itself a telltale sign that we do not have clear-cut, unequivocal, categorical adilla on this issue. Because if the dalil of that kind did exist, we would not have this kind or this extent of khilaf. The fact that people differed so much and when we say people, we're not talking about anybody. We're talking about Mujtahideen. We're talking about Sahaba. And uh, we're talking about you know, scholars, basically. The fact that they differed to this extent, and they differed this vehemently and this strongly, they disagreed this strongly, goes to show that there is no clear-cut adilil on this issue, and therefore it is an issue of ijtihad. Now, that's not to say that both sides are correct. No. We say that one of the opinions is correct with Allah. Which opinion is, is, is with him alone, subhanahu wa ta'ala, he knows. But we are tested. Then it becomes an issue. We are tested. As, as, as a Muslim, you're tested, as a Mufti, you're tested, as a Mujtahid, you're tested, to try as much as possible to ascertain to the best extent, to the best possibility, what does Allah, what is the haq with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? What, what does Allah, what does Allah decree to be the truth on this issue? And this is where ijtihad happens, the muwarid of nadar and ikhtilaf and so on. And this is where the reward of one and two rewards comes into it. Because you will try your utmost to ascertain what is the haq with Allah? And this is where Hawa comes into it. And remember, I think it was the last session or the one before, where we need to introspect, check our intentions, and check, you know, am I inclining to this opinion? Because it fits well with me. Ah, jama'ah is not obligatory. Ah, alhamdulillah, I can skip the jama'ah in the masjid. Uh, or is that, or is it, for purely for or is it truthfully in pursuit of the evidences and the truth on these sort of things this is always a question that most mujtahid and mufti and mustafti and mustafti actually needs to ask himself Ahmed Ahmed said by the way last session i said ma'roof and i was slightly muddled i believe it's ma'roof al-karakhi ma'roof al-karakhi remember there was a i think um ahmed uh, the brother is called, I don't know if he's here today. Maruf al Karahi. Qalil Ahmed Ahmed ibn Hanbal, of course, wa qajaf al Hadith, la hadhaf al Islam, even taraka salah. There is no share of Islam for the one who abandons salah. Uh, here, I like this. Wa inna ma hadhu min al Islam, ala qadr hadhihim min al salah. Their share of Islam is in accordance with their share of the salah. Wa ragbatim fil Islam, ala qadr ragbatim fil salah. And their desire in Islam, or their, the strength of their faith, is determined by the strength of their desire for salah. Fa'arif nafsaka ya Abdullah. Know yourself, servant of Allah. And fear and beware or be afraid of meeting Allah and you have no share of Islam in your heart. 
the share of Islam that you have in your heart is in accordance with the share of Salah in your heart. I like these rules of thumbs. Remember the one of the sessions, was it the previous one, where we said that Ibn Qayyim says, look, if you want to know what Allah Azza thinks of you, ask yourself, what does Allah, how much does Allah Azza enable me to recite his words? I like these rules of thumbs. They're good to keep in mind. They're easy to remember as well. Like I said, every issue, khilaf and the deal of both sides. This is the second issue, the third issue. There aren't many highlights, by the way, uh, on this occasion, and inshallah we'll finish uh, before time, perhaps. Uh, this will leave, inshallah. Some of these passages, uh, this one as well. These, some of these passages uh, are research questions or things to explore. Look here, he says, well, can it sunnah? I and here you two questions come. If the Prophet observes something throughout his life, throughout his life on every single occasion, is that in and of itself an indication that that act is an obligation? And if the Prophet abandons something on every single occasion, abandons something or tarak, the turuk, the Prophet abstains from something, is that in and of itself an indication that that thing is prohibited? He's able to do it, and yet repeatedly he avoids doing it. Does that tell us that it's haram? This is an usuli question, but it's just one that some of you can sort of take up or think about when you're reading or studying and so on. This here is the difference between fard ain fard kifaya. He says, فَإِنَّ فَضْلِ الْكِفَايَةِ يَجِبْ عَلَى الْجَمِعِ Fard kifaya is an obligation upon everyone. وَيَسْقُطْ بِفَعْلِ الْبَعْضِ and it, it 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 no longer becomes an obligation on everyone if some people do it. The benefit of this appears in two ways. One one way, that if everyone does an action that is fard kifaya, everyone will be rewarded for it. So although the action is this fard kifaya no longer is no longer obligatory if a, coll a collective duty is no longer obligatory on everyone if a group of people do it but if everyone does do it everyone will be rewarded for doing it uh, because everyone is being addressed with that commandment i like that that if everyone abandons it, everyone deserves to be punished ibn al-qayyim here talks about why salah is special uh, he says, Because Salah has unique features or characteristics that are not found in anything else. First of all, he says, this is the first obligation uh, uh, of Islam. Allah is willing, the first thing Allah made obligatory upon the believers is to pray. Uh, and that is why the Prophet, when he would command his messengers and his emissaries and people he's sending abroad to give da'wah, he would tell him, listen, after calling him to shahadatayn, the first thing you need to call him to is salah. You know, I was going to say, actually, this is all theoretical. But speaking of da'wah, what really what we aspire to, because the, none of this book or most of this book is not practical. Like I said, the only thing we can learn from this book is the methodology. And the secondly, we can learn how the Prophet ﷺ prayed. But more than all of that, the important thing for us is what we want to do is to get to that stage where people look at our salah, where the Muslims look at our salah. I can think of a few people, subhanAllah. When they are praying, you know they're praying. You say, this guy's, this guy is, he's doing a salah. That's a salah. That's what we want. 
we want to get to a level where our salah is meaningful, where our salah does really lead to abandoning of fahsha and munkar, where our salah is truly a sila with Allah Azza wa It's a true connection with Allah wa Ta'ala. We want our salah to be a, uh, you know, um, we want people to look at our salah, non-Muslims to look at our salah and say, I want some of that. That's, some, that's something going on there. That's really what we aspire to. So in relation to this da'wah and so on. Um, okay, I'll get back to, I'll get to the comments in a minute, inshallah. Now, so uh, after that, it's the first thing Allah makes obligatory. He says, well, The first thing that we will be held, held accountable for on the Day of Judgment is our salah. And because it is, it is the only thing to have been made obligatory, not in the on this planet, but in the in the heavens. And the, when Prophet ascended to the heavens. Because it is the most mentioned uh, obligation in the Quran. These are some of the special things about salah and what makes salah unique as opposed to all the other obligations. And that, and we also, because when people of hell are asked, why? Why did you end up in hell? This is, they began their answer with, we went from those who used to pray. Ibn Qayyim says, Because it's ob- this obligation of salah is always running. Uh, it always It's always there. So long as you are, Sane. It does. You are, you are required to do it under all circumstances, unlike the other obligations, which require certain, um, uh, which which are uh, obligatory at certain, certain times and not others. Zakah, Hajj, and and uh, and fasting Ramadan. He says, Islam," because it is the Amud Fustat al Islam. It's almost like you know. Uh, I don't know what they call them, but in tents, if you have a tent, the center piece that holds up the rest of the tent, that's the amud. So you want to knock that down, everything comes down with it. Uh, he says, and also, another reason why it's special salah is because it's the last thing that we will lose of this deen. All the obligations will go one by one. The last thing that goes is the salah. Why is it also special? Because it's an obligation upon everyone, free servant, woman, male, traveling, non-traveling, healthy, unhealthy, rich, poor, whatever it may be your condition, it is still an obligation on you. And Prophet would not accept people's Islam unless they were happy to, or unless they accepted, they would be obliged to do salah. So Prophet people would come and say, I want to embrace Islam and say, okay, you want to embrace Islam, but you know what? You have to do salah. By the way, here's a point, a side point. We have evidence in the sunnah the Prophet ﷺ would accept somebody coming to him and he says, Messenger of Allah, I want to embrace Islam, but you know what? I only want to pray twice a day. There's khilaf among scholars as to whether this is acceptable. What we say, what we say is that, or the more correct opinion, inshallah, is that we accept, we, do, we accept Islam with shart, Islam with a condition. We say, no, no problem, come, come to Islam. The point is to enter, allow him to enter Islam. And then Allah will guide him and help him and so on. This is just a side point. This came to mind. And the reason why salah is important, Ibn al-Qaim tells us, is because the acceptance of all other actions, good, good deeds, is dependent or is pending upon the salah. So if, if Allah will not accept your fasts, he says, no your hajj, no your jihad, no your salah, no anything good from you unless your salah is in order. And then this, we have the hadith, and the evidence for this hadith, 
found in Musnad in Sunan. Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu tells us that the Prophet said the first thing, awul ma yuhasab bihi al-abd min amali yuhasab bi salati. He will be held accountable for the first thing that one will be held accountable for on the day of judgment is the salah. Fa'in salahat. If the salah is in order, then he is succeeded and he is uh, uh, successful and uh, and he's successful and um, done well. And if he doesn't, if it's not in order, then he has lost and he is um, he's basically lost out or is a loser. We've covered this uh, when I said the difference between had and ridda. Yes, uh, I'm not sure we should go into this. We'll leave it, inshallah, actually. This here, he talks about takfir. He said, look, if somebody enters Islam and we are certain of their Islam, we can only expel them from Islam if we are certain that they have abandoned Islam. And with Salah here, we can't be certain because it's an issue of dispute. Uh, among the scholars so how can you expel someone on the basis of something that is disputable uh, this is a good qaida by the way it's a very good rule and it helps uh, deal with uh, these takfir phenomena that people have you know if you want to expel someone from Islam you are certain if he's Muslim yes it's al-hal. you are certain he's Muslim طيب. if you are certain he's Muslim 100% you can't expel him on the basis of something that he said that could imply kufr or that could it's 99 it's uh, it has to be certain you have to be certain of the act that the act is kufr that he intended the act that the act actually there's no uh gray area and any i think this i this um problem of takfir comes in and goes in <clears throat> excuse me comes and goes in waves <clears throat> excuse me in other words uh, it it sort of peaks and then dies down and peaks again and then dies down. Um, uh, and we, we shouldn't be interested in it. We're not in a position. We shouldn't be interested. We want to win people over. We want to win people over to this deen. Why, why do you want to expel people? What, what do we gain by expelling people from this deen? Nothing. We don't gain anything. Somebody professes, I am a Muslim. On what basis do you have? What basis are you expelling him? Yeah, he's telling you I'm Muslim. If he's telling you I'm Muslim, your duty now is not to expel him because of something he did, but to educate him, to teach him, to say, listen, you're Muslim, right? Okay, beautiful. Come, let's discuss this issue. Let's discuss it sincerely in pursuit of the truth. You know, and I was saying earlier uh, that this Ibn Qayyim, one of the things about him is that he presents the evidences of both parties as yeah, very objectively but you know that's and then he sometimes inclines to an opinion now the fact that he does that doesn't of course mean that he is always going to be correct on these issues yeah he presented the offer you very well perhaps better than the opponents would but that doesn't mean the fact that he did that doesn't and then he adopts a view of his own doesn't necessarily mean that he will be correct and that's why and that's because the qadr of allah azawajal, allah azawajal's qadr is that he will not always be right simple as uh, let's carry on. Or shall I look at these comments here? Just search Taymiyyah and Shamila. Only one reference. Thank you for that. That's a good faida. Mustafa here says that he searched for Ibn Taymiyyah in this book via Shamila. Beautiful tool. Always use it. And he says that Ibn Qayyim does, in fact, mention Ibn Taymiyyah once. He said, uh, yeah, so. Um, 
Although I remember you saying he started writing after me to pass. Perhaps this was an exception. Allahu alam. Allahu alam. Jazakallah khair for that. It was a very good faith. And this is, this is, uh, you know, Shamil is a blessing from Allah. We should always make dua for the people who are behind that project or the person, one person initially behind that project because it's just facilitated these things. Now imagine we had to do that manually. Listen, can you go through Kitab al-Salah and pinpoint any time when Ibn Qayyim mentions Ibn Taymiyyah? Now, and it's there, mashallah. Jazakum lakhir. Tayyib, we are, um, okay, wow, subhanAllah, we're almost an hour in. Let me see. A lot of this, as I said, we skip. Ah. Ibn al-Qayyim's opinion, of course, is that while abandoning Salah is a kabira and so on, he says, he, he, he doesn't tell us, he doesn't appear to adopt the view that abandoning one Salah is kufr. He says, ala anna naqul, we say, لا يصر, لا يصر على ترك الصلاة إصرارا مستمرا من يس, يس, يصدق بأن الله أمر بها أصلا. There is no way, it's not, it's, uh, you can't fathom. A person says, I believe in Allah made salah obligatory. I have been asked to offer salah. I have avoided or I've refrained from doing so, abstained from doing so. He says, it's impossible for that person to be a believer. It just doesn't make sense. And it makes, it's, true, it's absolutely true. Somebody's saying to you, salah is obligatory. You've abandoned the salah. Abandoning salah means it's a major sin. And guess what? We're going to punish you regardless. We're going to put you in prison and we're going to threaten you with, with, with the death penalty for abandoning salah. That's how important salah is. And yet you insist on not doing it. You can't be a believer. You're just, you, you must be a lunatic, in which case we sent you to a mental asylum. And by the way, mental asylums did exist in the history of Islam. Mental asylums did exist in the history of Islam. We send you to a mental hospital or, we, or, yani, or you can't be a Muslim. So in that case, we kill you as a murtad. So that's Ibn al-Qayyim's opinion. If somebody abandons salah deliberately and insists on that, even after that he's been threatened with force and to be threatened with punishment, that means he's not Muslim. Uh, absolutely. Um, the definition of iman. I like this bit here. Uh, actually, no. This is not the bit. I've confused another one. Yes, this is a discussion about whether a mere profession of belief is enough to keep you Muslim uh, or uh, it requires action as well. Whether action is داخل في المسمى الإيمان جنس العمل We don't need to get into those discussions, technical discussions. Very useful discussions, important discussions actually, but they're not for today um, because we want to stick to this book and we also want to What did I write here? How do I open this? Okay. Uh, ورواه مسلم بين الرجل وبين الكفر ترك الصلاة. This I highlighted, I believe, because I wanted to show uh, that the hadith between a man and disbelief is abandoning salah. It doesn't tell us how many salawat. Uh, is it the one prayer, the two, the three, and so on? Aha, this is the point here. Okay, he says there's a hadith uh, appears to be strong. Wasallam says whoever um, uh, preserves or uh, not preserves, whoever abides or um, observes these salawat, these, the, the, these prayers, it'll be a light and a protection for him and on the day of judgment. And whoever doesn't, 
and it won't be a light nor a protection nor a way of saving him nor a saving grace for him on the day of judgment and he will be on the day of judgment along with Qarun, Fir'aun, Haman and Ibn Abi Khalf um, he says here there is a uh, he says that the person who abandons salah either abandons it because he's occupied with his wealth or his kingdom or his business or his uh, rulership you know power so he, you know, the, the point here is when we do something, we ought to ask ourselves, who are my self in this? And not in that way that don't speak about something like Imam Ahmed is supposed to, Rahimahullah said, don't speak about something you don't have a self in. No, we don't mean that. We mean that which tribe do I belong to? Who am I going to be resurrected alongside with? So he's saying here, you know, when somebody doesn't do salah, why is he not doing salah? It might be, it must be something. Either he's occupied with wealth, he's occupied with kingdom, leadership, or his business, or something of that kind. He said, in that case, on the day of judgment, you'll be resurrected along with those people because those people abandoned salah for those reasons. Uh, now, of course, as one brother asked me uh, just yesterday, in fact, I believe, he said, yeah, but you know people abandon salah for other reasons. I said, it's true. Ibn al-Qaim here is not talking about abandoning salah for mere laziness. He's saying, yes, if, however, you are lazy, but if an opportunity came for you to make a lot of money, you would suddenly feel energetic and do that thing. Which says to me that you are along with uh, 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 what you call Ibn Abi Khalaf and Wafan or Ibn Khalaf and Qarun, because those are the guys are the same mentality. If there an opportunity came for you to make money, you would be suddenly energized and, and want to do it. Similarly, when you say I'm abandoning salah because I'm lazy, no, 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 you're abandoning salah because it's you prefer the things to it. Uh, so anyway, in any case, one question we ought to ask ourselves is which tribe, who do I, who am I, who am I self? Who am I going to be resurrected alongside with? So if you're with those people who, you know, people of good deeds, or particular particular ibadah, say, I'm going to be resurrected, inshallah, alongside those people. Remember, we talked about, I'm not sure it was the first or second session, we talked about Allah producing registers, or every dua coming to the judgment as a register. It says, oh Allah, this person made this dua on this and this and this day. You know how we have timestamps, like for chats and everything? Uh, more detailed, I imagine, they have judgment, you know? Or the action will appear before us. So, oh Allah, this is from the Ahl, the people of this dua. And we ought to strive to become people of as many duas as we can, which is why we should vary our salah, which is why we should vary our, not for boredom reasons, but also for reward reasons. You know, if you keep saying the same thing, it almost comes monotonous, repetitive, and boring. With the exception of Surah Al-Fatiha, subhanAllah. Uh, which is why it's important to vary the dua you make. And the Prophet ﷺ would do different dua at Iyya and his salah and his iftah and his ruku' and sujood and so on. Similarly, vary the recitation we do. Partly because to alleviate or to escape from boredom and repetition. And partly, another, not many other benefits of course, but also partly so that we can appear before Allah on the register. Say, who did this? This is the du'a. Who made this du'a? This is the register. All these people are on. Inshallah, we are. We find ourselves among those people. Uh, okay. Bismillah. Let's carry on. Okay. We're almost an hour in. We don't need to go into this. Yeah, this is an important thing here where he's basically, Ibn al-Qayyim is asking, 
I'm not asking, but he's making a point, which is that, you know, Islam is submission. And submission entails not just theoretical, that you know something, but you are prepared to accept and submit to the truth and act upon the truth. And that is the difference between us Muslims, and that, the, the giveaway is in the name Muslim, and other faiths and other people who know the truth, who may know the truth, who will know the truth, but don't abide by it, don't practice it. He says, وَهَكَذَا الْهُدَى لَيْسَ هُمْ مُجَرَدْ مَعْرِفْتِ الْحَقِّ وَتَبِيِّنِ Knowing the truth is not simply knowing the... Uh, guidance is not simply knowing the truth and... Uh, making it clear to people to guidance truly is to know the truth and act by it or abide by it and to act by its requirements even if we call the first thing which is the theoretical guidance guidance we call it guidance it's not the true or complete or perfect guidance which le which leads to uh, which uh, which leads to uh, uh, true guidance. I don't. Uh, it's an awful translation. Maybe someone can offer a suggestion. But in the same way that if we say someone has believes in something, true belief, that is theoretically yes. It's is uh, that belief is theoretically in the heart, but it's not the true meaning of, of belief because true belief implies or in in uh, or dictates that one acts upon it. If you truly believe something, if I truly believed that something is you know I don't know fire is going, may Allah protect us or something, I will act upon that. So say, oh, I believe there's a fire, and then not do anything is in itself of telling me that um, there's a flaw in your belief. So anyway, here I, this 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 French differentiation is is an interesting one. It's an important one, and it goes to and and to be a Muslim is not just to know the 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 the, the truth, but to abide by it, to stick by it, and that's what it means to be a Muslim. Muslim, submit, you submit. where are we? Okay, let's carry on, inshallah. Okay, we don't need to go into that. Uh, by the way, our next book, inshallah, will be a Risalat Tabukiya. The Tabuki, the Tabuk Epistle is how we translate it. It, it. it exists in the English language. There is a translation by Muhammad al-Jibari. I don't know if he's alive or not, but he was, uh, mashallah, and at one point he had the I think it's Quran and Sunnah Society, or is it? it was publications, and he produced a number of books. We're talking maybe 20 years ago. So this book does exist, the Risalat Tabukiya. Um, hopefully, one session on just that, and then maybe the following will be two sessions before we get on to Zad al Ma'ad, if Allah Azza wa Jal wills. Uh, Ibn al Qayyim here brings, I remember I mentioned that one of the discussions that Ibn al-Qaim indulges at length, a very, very long discussion, is whether whether you can actually perform a salah that you abandon deliberately as qada. The majority of the schools, the majority of the fuqaha, are of the view that yes, you can. And they evidence their position. 
Ibn al-Qayyim's view, that of Ibn Taymiyyah, no surprise, is that actually, no, you can't. If Allah is, if, if, if there is a prayer that, if you have abandoned a prayer, there is no way you can ever, ever make up that prayer. I'm not going to tell you what my position is or what I, where I stand on this. That's not, that's not that important here. But what I do want is there's a nice, uh, you know, the evidence they, the other party brings is, for example, that, you know, uh, this is a qada and Allah, and if we have to do qada, if we have to, it's a debt. And if we have to give, um, uh, fulfill our debts, then Allah's debt is more worth fulfilling. Uh, for example, they bring evidence such as uh, that if we are making it obligatory upon the one who is who misses the salat of sleep, for example, how is it that we don't make it obligatory upon the one who deliberately abandons the salat? So in other words, we're punishing the one who abandons the salat uh, out of, uh, sorry, who misses the salat out of sleep, for example, or forgetfulness, and yet we're not punishing the one who deliberately uh, does his salat. But no, Ibn Qayyim and Ibn Taymi present a different case. And one of the nice things I like to share here is they say, no, Look, salah is an honor. Allah has honored you with the salah. Allah has given you an appointment. You've missed that appointment. You can never, ever make up that appointment again because it's an honor and you've missed that on the honor. Allah has made an appointment and he's given you an audience. And he said, look, between this time and this time, this is the time you do your salah. Come and contact me, communicate with me, speak to me during this time. You didn't do that. You've missed out. You can't ever make that up again. He says, the only way around this, Ibn Qayyim says, is, look, the only thing you can do is istikhtar min nawafil, that you make up for this thraya nawafil. And there's evidence, he evidences this, of course, that on the day of judgment when the salah uh, is presented before Allah, if, our salah, if we've missed salawat or if we've forgotten salawat or if we've, not forgotten salawat, no, if we've missed salawat or whatever, or our salah was not to the standard that Allah will accept, then Allah turns to, uh, after finishing off with the batch of obligatory prayers, he turns to the nawafil salah and he says, okay, does my servant have any nawafil? Okay, he does. Then now his nawafil will um, supplement or will complete or perfect the fara'id. But this is, as he says here, this is an issue of khilaf and there's al-fariqain, the two parties and their evidences. Um, uh, but I really like that. It's always nice to think Instead of the bland sort of fiqhi discussions, we move on to something and say, you know what? Uh, salah is an honor. Salah is an honor. And, you know, this is one of the things about Ibn al-Qayyim, of course, and many others. Ibn Rajab, a student. Speaking of Ibn Rajab, uh, actually, I'll get to that in a minute, inshallah. But uh, one of the features of Ibn al-Qayyim's writings is that they're not just bland fiqhi discussions dry. This could have easily been one of those. No, he infuses it with that, these spiritual insights, you know? And... Um, it just it's just different it's nice it's nice to have these kind of uh these these sort of uh points being raised uh let's carry on inshallah okay okay we don't need to go into that some technical discussions uh what's this this is an issue of ijma' claiming ijma'. Actually, he says something nice here. Uh, let me see if it's here or no. So uh, he says one of the ways, basically, that opponents hire is <laughs> he says when you're in a fiqh discussion, Ibn Qayyim says he says 
when the opponent or the person who disagrees with you, your interlocutor, the other side, the opposition, when they are unable to deal with an evidence, what they they do is they make claims. Two types of claims in particular are very common. The first claim is a claim of ijma. They say, oh, this is an ijma issue of ijma. We hear this a lot, by the way. We hear this a lot. And anything, the first thing you bring up is ijma. There's an ijma. And you say, okay, let's verify there's an ijma. Is there really an ijma? How can there be an ijma? Sometimes they say, yeah, but they sometimes they mean by ijma that the overwhelming majority of people agree with it. That's, yani, when you say overwhelming majority agree with the mas'ala, who is the opposition on this mas'ala? If you're telling me Umar and Ali and Ibn Abbas disagreed on this issue, that's not, yes, there are three people, and maybe that opinion wasn't, fell into obscurity afterwards, but those are not jokers. Umar, Ali and Ibn Abbas are not jokers. So when you tell me that all the Ummah adopted an opinion and Umar and Ali adopted a slightly different position, Umar and Ali are serious. You have to contend with that. That's not Ijma. How can Ijma have missed out on Umar and Ali? It doesn't make sense. Anyway, point point of this digress. The point is they bring two weapons, two common weapons. One is Ijma. And he says here, like scholars were very wary, especially early Muslim scholars in the great Ima, were very wary of claiming, making claims to Ijma. Um, and the other one he says is Nesakh. He says the other common tactic they use is, you know what, this is Mansukh. This hadith, yes, it was an early part of Islam, but afterwards it was uh, abrogated or whatever. Um, uh, so he, 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 he brings it up. He brings it up. Um, this here about Salah, uh, when somebody is occupied in war, like a, a soldier or something, and Salah, and, and Salah comes in, Salah becomes obligatory. What is that person supposed to do? Uh, that he is supposed to. In now, he says there are three opinions. One is that he prays it uh, during the during the actual fighting. The second is that he can delay it, and this is the opinion of Malik and Meth and Shafi and Ahmed in one of his opinions. And the third is that he he um, uh, sorry th 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 he delays it. Well, I apologize. Now, sorry, the first opinion is that he must pray it in, in uh, straight away, and this is the opinion of Malik and Shafi, and one of the opinions of Ahmed. The second is that he can delay it, and this is the opinion of Abu Hanifa. And he says the third opinion is that he prays it in the capacity, whatever capacity he can pray it in. Uh, and he says, uh, uh, and the, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is I remember at the early uh, beginning of this whole uh, COVID situation, I remember some doctors asked this question. He says, you know, we are, if, if, if we're undergoing serious surgery and this surgery takes a long time, what is one supposed to do with salah? Uh, so this is just presenting the different positions on this. Uh, that somebody can delay it. Someone must pray it. And the third position is that one is to pray it in whatever capacity they can pray it, in, which means that you sometimes even pray it with uh, the minimal movements. Yeah, I'm just putting that khilaf out there. I thought it was relevant because I remember this question being asked. Um, okay. Okay, what is this here? No, okay, that's another interesting point, but not needed. 
This is the point I was making. وقد اتخذ كثير من الناس دعوة النسخ وإجماع سلما إلى إبطال كثير من السنة الثابتة. So as I said, that many people use إجماع and use نسخ abrogation as ways of uh, dismissing certain things that the Prophet ﷺ himself did. Uh, I like this here. Um, but we don't need to go through it. And we don't need to translate it. Uh, okay. Now I'm here, the question of the uh, that Ibn al-Qayyim deals with, of course, at one point is whether somebody who simply performs a salah and that salah is not performed with any degree of khushu or any degree of um, consciousness, uh, it's an ineffective salah. He says, he says here, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, What you don't have, your, the only share of salah that you have is the share that you're aware of or conscious of. If you're only conscious or, or, or active, active, mentally active or spiritually active and one portion of your salah, you will get reward for that share and nothing else. And he says, that Even though technically you've performed the salah, legally speaking in this dunya, the fuqaha will say, yeah, this salah is, is valid. He says, but before Allah, جل, if this salah did not have its effects did not uh, fulfill its required did not fulfill its purpose uh, and wasted most of that this is on what basis are we saying the salah is valid on what basis uh, this here is about praying uh, non-obligatory prayers standing sitting on the side he says you know we don't have any evidence uh that somebody uh can pray uh, uh without reason on this side he says voluntary prayers can be prayed standing and sitting down uh and one of the practices i heard once a person of knowledge and scholar that i uh, look up to he says you know one of the things that has been abandoned is reciting the quran if you can't recite the quran do your word standing that's one thing that's the best then he says a lot of people miss out on the opportunity of reciting the Quran or doing their with sitting. And uh, to me, it was an eye opener when I heard that. He says, "Okay, so face the qibla, do you get into salah and just sit and recite?" I I really like that. He says, "Yes, the reward won't be equal because the other one entails further, um, more physical involvement." But I like that. I thought I'd share it with you, inshallah. Uh, This here I liked for one reason. He says that he's discussing the issue of whether uh, praying in the masjid is an obligation or not. Or can you pray jama'ah in your house? He says, uh, uh, he says, and to say this, to say that it's not obligatory to pray in the masjid. He says, This is a very far-fetched opinion. He says one of them because praying in the masjid is one of the biggest um, uh, outward signs. It's a poor translation of this deen. The biggest sha'ir. Um, what's sha'ir? How do they translate it usually? Uh, like um, 
out with signs of the deen. He says, وفي تركها بالكلية أو في أو في المفاسد. He says, and abandoned completely is has is one of the most corrupt things you can do. One of the most harmful things you can do. ومحو آثار الصلاة بحيث تفضي إلى فطور الهمم. Such that it will eventually lead to people sort of not having the energy for salah at all. إلى فطور الهمم أكثر الخلق عن أصل فعلها. And to the extent that some people eventually will begin to abandon salah itself. And this, why does this come to mind? Because of course, all of you are aware that there are big, these major, like there are discussions within the community among the muftis and mashayikh and aim and so on uh, regarding closing the masajid. And of course, Ibn Qayyim here is of the view that we can't, he's not saying, not of course talking about the context that we're in, but he is saying that, listen, Closing, uh, people not going to the masjid. If we were to say to people, you know what, it's not obligatory to pray in the masjid. He said, eventually, you know, that will lead people to uh, the view, to, to, to the to the to a sense that you know what, actually, salah is not that important, and it will lead to um, uh, uh, sort of that uh, lethargic, lethargic view, you know. And I've heard some sheikh recently voice the same concerns, actually. Whether that's true or not is a different question. But anyway, I thought there was actually a, a quote in its time and place. Um, whoever considers the sunnah properly will realize that praying the salah in the masjid is is an obligation upon the ayan. Unless, of course, for one reason or another, a proper reason, you are unable to do so. That's Ibn Al-Qayyim. This is one of the few occasions where he makes his opinion quite clear. We believe what we worship Allah with is that there is not permissible to abandon the salah in the masjid without without a valid excuse. Uh, My my view, not that it matters that much, is that uh, the praying in the masjid is obligatory for the one who hears the adhan. Praying in the masjid is obligatory for the one who hears the the adhan. Um, here, why did the Prophet ﷺ, when he said to this, when this man appeared before him and the Prophet ﷺ says, go pray, you haven't prayed properly. And he came back, he said, go pray and you haven't prayed properly. I like this point that Ibn Qayyim here raises. He says, so the people... Uh, some scholars say, well, why didn't the Prophet interrupt his salah? Tell him to stop praying. You know, he says, He says, because that will put him off. If the Prophet had told, had interrupted this man's salah while he's doing it, he would have put him off. And he would not, وسلم, been able to teach that person in the way, in an orderly way, in a proper way. In the same way that the Prophet left that person who was urinating the masjid to finish and then taught him and this is from his gentleness and his the, the, the perfect way of his teaching and his kindness and his leniency or kindness or clemency and i just like that point that uh, you know there are certain times when uh prophet could have abandoned could have um, told him to stop his salah could have interrupted the salah could have ordered him to stop his terminate the salah but he didn't he left him and then he taught him. There's something in that for us, inshallah. طيب, let's carry on. Okay, inshallah. Uh, okay, 45 minutes, subhanAllah. Ah, 
so here this is he turns to the longest question or the 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 the, the most detailed discussion i believe um from here onwards where he discusses what did the prophet how did the prophet and pray what was the length of his prayer and of course one of the things that Ibn Qayyim here did is he most uh, or the most important book and perhaps the second or the third longest the three longest discussions i should say this is perhaps the longest discussion so the other one was about whether salah is obligatory in the masjid and also um, whether you can do uh, perform in a prayer that you deliberately abandon those are the longest discussion then of course the first discussion about whether it's kufr or not is 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 quite lengthy but this is the longest one as far as i could tell from 290 onwards pretty much he uh here we'll miss al hadi al ashar which is 289 sorry uh ibn al-qayyim goes length here this is the most important thing for us well, most practical thing, I should say. But of course, Ibn Rajab notes one of the things Ibn Rajab says, and Ibn Rajab, we, we said in the first session, meets Ibn Al-Qayyim at 14, and Ibn Al-Qayyim dies one year later, so Ibn Rajab is still 15, very impressionable age. But one of the things that Ibn Al-Qayyim says, and Ibn Kathir as well, uh, Ibn Rajab says, and Ibn Kathir too, uh, he says, uh, Ibn Rajab says, you know, his salah was excessively long. His salah was very, very long to the extent that people of friends and so on would criticize him for it. See, your salah is just too long. And uh, here, Ibn Qayyim, in this section, one of the things that he goes on and on about is the length of salah. And he presents, you know, those very famous hadith that all of us know, and he, he says this himself. All of us are familiar with Mu'ad's hadith where, um, where Muslim remark to one of the companions says are you a fatan uh, are you like causing problems why can't you just recite one of the short sword and he says mashallah all of you know this hadith <laughs> he says that and he says but you've forgotten the time when the prophet said recite the surah al-araf and you've forgotten the time when he said sallallahu alayhi and so on he says but you all stuck to this hadith huh? so it's really interesting this discussion <laughs> um, and he himself, Rahimahullah, he says, you know, this is one of the most important and, and noble masa'il. And for people to know this masala is more important to them than their food and drink. Back to the point we made earlier on about contextualizing these statements and how Ibn al Qayyim is seeing this. If someone were to say, the length of your salah is more important than knowing than your need for food and drink. You think this guy is crazy. But no, these people are different. These are people of Allah. We're people of something else. But these are people of Allah. And that's why Allah is central to all their discussions. Allah is at the back and the forefront and every of their minds. How do I gain Allah's pleasure? Um, not how do I fulfill the salah and get out of it and fulfill the duty and khalas, that's it. How do I communicate with Allah properly? That's his concern. So here... A very long discussion, and I did mention, didn't I, that there's a translation of something called the Inner Dimensions of Salah. It touches on a lot of this. So those of you who can't read this book for whatever reason, uh, do refer to that English translation. Um, we know that the Prophet ﷺ, Salah, as in the Hadith, he says, This is Anas ibn Malik, who is saying, He used to shorten the prayer and perfect it. But he, Ibn Qayyim says, well, ijaz huwa alladhi kan yaf'aluhu. Ijaz, by shortening, is what he, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, used to do. Lal ijaz alladhi yadunnuhu man lam yaqif ala maqdar salati. Not the shortening that we presume, or those of us who, who haven't, uh, aren't aware of his salah, presume. 
الشوتنج وات دوز الشوتنج مين شوتنج از هيس صلى الله عليه واله وسلم فان الايجاز امر نسبي اضافي ايجاز شوتنج از ا ريليتيف ايشو وات شوت مي از شوت يو راجعين الى السنه بس سو واتس ذا كرايتيريا هاو دو وي نو وات شوتنج مينز هي سيز شوتنج مينز شوتنج ريكوايرز اس تو ريفير باك تو ذا سنه لا الى شهوه الامام من خلفه نوت تو ذا ديزاير اوف ذا امام اور ذوز بيبل بيهايند ذا امام سو هي سيز يس بروفيسور سيل انس ديسكرايبس ذا صلاه از بينج شورت What does short mean? And then he gives you hadith after hadith after hadith of how the Prophet used to pray. Uh, and he says one of the big problems that people fall into, people who don't know the prophetic way of doing salah, is that they prolong the qiyam and they shorten or they make brief the, 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 the sujood and the ruku'ah. He says this is completely contradictory to sunnah. And this is why Anas uh, was weeping, by the way, according to uh, Ibn Qayyim's understanding. And He says Anas was weeping because he found that the salah of the people then, of, and he was the last Sahabi to have passed away, or one of the last Sahabi to have passed away, is that his uh, the, the people were prolonging the, the qiyam and shortening their ruku and sujood. And he says, no. He says, actually, the sunnah is to prolong the ruku and the sujood. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Ibn, uh, specifically, Ibn Rajab singles out the ruku'ah. The ruku'ah is something that Ibn al-Qayyim used to prolong. And ruku'ah, of course, and that's no surprise. When you read of how Ibn al-Qayyim talks about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know that this guy uh, is in true communication with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because ruku'ah is that is not the place where you make dua, as in dua, request, dua talab. The ruku'ah is that place where you invoke Allah azawajal and you praise him. So uh, if I'm not mistaken, ruku'ah is, uh, you know, I don't know anyone who does like very long ruku'ah. anymore like i don't see it and um, i think earlier i mentioned that i know a few people who i who sometimes you see them do salah i think he's doing salah this guy is doing salah for real um no nah. i would do welcome comments by the way I any mean, I've, i've been just talking for the last hour and so so if you have any ins- ins- insights any comments anything you want to share add them uh, please do uh point here about if you recite a surah that contains a sajda in a silent prayer do you do sujood he says yes there is and there's and and, and the evidence and he, he evidences it um no but i recommend reading all of this he sort of gives you the reason why every this and there's something else for those of you who read, read arabic ali uh is a very short essay essentially a summary of this really where he talks about salah uh, the name escapes me right now but it's very short you read it in half an hour and it's absolutely beautiful he goes through the whole everything from the takbir to the taslim and every rakun and what you say and why you say it and what sort of uh, thoughts to conjure in your mind when you're saying these things what to how to understand these words what do they mean what does the fatiha mean what does the istiftah what does the ruku' the tasbih so everything recommend that very short risala i'll try and find the uh, if i remember the title i'll share inshallah <laughs> this one you'll like those of you especially who can understand the arabic fasalat ahadith al-rukhsa fi haqqiha shubha sadifat shahwa wa futuran fi al-azm wa qillat raghban fi badl al-juhd fi an-nasiha fi an-nasiha fi al-khidma 
وفي الخدمه ربما واستسهل واستسهلت حق الله تعالى وجعلت وجعلت كرمه وغناه من اعظم شبهاتها في في التفريط فيها واضاعته وفعله بالهوين تحل تحلت القسم ولهجه ولهجه بقولها ما استقصى كريم حقه قط بقول حق حق الله مبني على المسامح والمساهل والعفو وحق العباد مبني على الشح والضيق والاستقصاء the length of which have been mentioned as being of similar correct we passed يعني there were some highlights there إبراهيم إبراهيم asks the length of the ruku and sujud have been mentioned in a hadith as being of a similar length in the qiyam is this in general or in specific times you mean different different types of salawat I didn't I mean I didn't come across I didn't uh, see a difference difference between there's no differentiating my understanding is that they're all um, uh, all the salah are equal in that sense but so the ruku and the sujood are as long as the qiyam in all the salat wallahu alam wallahu alam woman lam takun this is one of those passages that beautiful passages woman lam takun woman lam takun Whoever is not delighted with salah, when salah is not and his 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 pleasure and his joy and his happiness is in, in salah, and the act and the life of his heart, when and the openness of his chest or his 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 his, uh, his chest. Then he's, of course he's gonna be happy and only pleased with these sort of a hadith of the only salah that suits this kind of person is the salah of the uh, thief. Because Prophet says the worst of thieves is the one who steals from his salah. He says, How does he steal from his salah? He says he doesn't perform his ruku and his sujood properly. والنقارين. والنقار is the uh, likely the birds that uh, uh, what do you call it uh, pecking pecking. And he says, of course you're going to like this hadith. Uh, he says, uh, uh, you know you're going to be really held on to this hadith, and ويميل للسنة إلى ما يناسبه and abide by the sunnah according to what you like and not and avoid those things you don't like. يعني very nice. ونحن نبرأ إلى الله من سلوك هذه الطريقة. We ask Allah. We are free. We seek refuge in Allah from people who do this, who stick by certain hadith and then abandon all the others. ونسأل ونسأله أن يعافينا مما ابتلى به أربابه. We ask Allah for protection from those who've been tested with this thing. بل بل ندين الله بكل ما صح عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم. We worship Allah. We take as religion everything that is authentically transmitted or reported from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's nice, this passage here. I like this. And it goes back to the point of Ijaz, shortening and brief, brevity and shortening in Salah and uh, is, uh, is determined by the Sunnah and doesn't go and isn't determined by the customs of a particular people or the tastes or the sh- of the Imam or whatever. Uh, rather, the Sunnah has clearly made clear what lengthening and what shortening the Salah actually mean. And we have tons of evidence to back that. Here he talks about Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, and he says, you know, we used to, Anas ibn Malik says, he says, you know, I haven't seen anyone pray properly. Uh, after, you know, I haven't seen anyone pray properly except Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, as in from the later generations. And uh, those who re- Prophet Umar ibn Abdul Aziz says that they used to count his sujood, uh, his tasbih, ruku, and sujood, and it used to be 10. 
10 10. So he used to do it whatever 10 times. He says, <laughs> says He didn't say these things like really quickly, without contemplating what he's saying. He says, you know, they're better than that. I like this point. طيب, um, not much left actually, and we're in time, alhamdulillah. والعبادات, Ibn Qayyim says, يرجع إلى الش... إلى الشارع في مقاديرها وصفاتها وهيئتها كما يرجع إليها في أصلها. عبادات are determined by the lawgiver, the shari, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the, um, the, so the measurements, in the descriptions, and in the uh, uh, the يعني how they are performed in the in the same way that we refer back to the shara in establishing their obligation. Fellow jaz, yes. Uh, so, yeah, back to basically reiterating the point about salah, the length, brevity, and so on, determined by the shara and not by anybody else. Uh, this is nice. He says, people who actually truly, truly, truly pray. He says, people who pray, pardon me, are very few. He says, and those who truly establish salah, the ones who do iqam of salah, are even less. And he says, like Umar says, Hajj, Qaliyah, people who perform Hajj, truly Hajj, are, are few, وَالْرُكَبْ كَثِيرٌ وَالْرَكَبُ كَثِيرٌ And while the people who travel to do it are many. Uh, because the ones who are doing it uh, without um, proper desire to do it are just basically wanting to to, to, to lift the obligation from them. Uh, they don't sense that the malaika are going up with these actions and descending back down and that they're being shown before Allah Azza wa Jal. Uh, this, that feeling is absent. He says, and there's a world of difference between that and the person who salah for them is rabi'a qalbihi wa hayat lahu wa raha wa qurrat aini wa jala' hizni. He says, there's a world of difference between somebody who prays prayer just to lift that obligation, just say, okay, I've done it. And between the one who prays and prayer to him is the spirit, the, 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 the water of his, uh, the, 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 the fountain of his life, that um, the joy, that, uh, that his joy is, it's the, it brings him pleasure, it's the apple of his eye, it's, uh, uh, it's a complete an obligation, it's the thing that he relies on, uh, seeking Allah's help and sabr and salah and so on. He says there's a world difference between these kind of prayers. And the part that is occupied here, he says, with Allah's love, with his fear, with desire in him, with his uh, with his magnanimity, with these sort of things, is going to perform a different salah from the one whose heart is basically ruined. Uh, he says when one somebody stand, when these two stand, they're completely different. They're completely different. Uh, in their effects, but also in the nature of the salah, in the, the meaningfulness of the salah, in the reward of the salah, and, and how Allah looks upon the salah, and how Allah causes one to draw closer to Him out of virtue, uh, out of uh, as a result of that beautiful salah, and the other person whom, you know, for as far as Allah is concerned, that's just okay, you know, okay, fine, you've, you've performed the prayer, but it's not the prayer that I wanted. Uh, and you know the idea of turning to Allah with these sort of thoughts in mind versus turning to Allah simply look I just want to do salah and move back to my dunya and carry on with my work and business and this is a problem by the way the nature of this world we live in today I don't know if COVID has helped you know workplaces work environments uh, you know having to rush your salah these are all like these are problems these are these are problems 
you know, these are challenges that we all face and somehow we ask Allah to help us. This here, beginning from page 344, he begins through, a, he breaks down the salah bit by bit, beginning with the wudu actually. No, not in this book. He doesn't do wudu in this book somewhere else. He does it with Allahu Akbar and the istiftah and he explains every single aspect of this salah. I recommend reading all of this. And it's just full of expressions as beautiful as these. Faya lathat qalbihi wa qurrat aini wa suru nafsihi. Yani how... I don't know when I read this, um, beautiful as they are, when I think of how Ibn Qayyim wrote this or how Ibn Qayyim felt saying this, it's just different. I, you know it's different. Because he's saying, Allah Azza wa Jal, when you recite the Fatiha, Allah is in conversation with you. And Allah Azza wa Jal says, oh, my servant has praised me. My servant has uh, glorified me. He says, what a and Ibn Qayyim says, what a beautiful thing it is for Allah to refer to you as my servant. You are my servant. You are my servant. I don't know how to explain that, but Ibn al-Qayyim elaborates at length. And Ibn al-Qayyim, you know, Ibn al-Qayyim is, Ibn Rajab says, you know, this guy used to do salah, long salah. And you know why? When you see this is the salah he's performing, you think, okay. And by the way, the the the, the moment we shorten, if you want to be blessed in your day, don't abandon this, the Quran and don't abandon the salah. And I'll tell you, I'm not speaking from experience, and I'm not speaking to praise myself or anything like that, but I can tell you from experience, Wallahi, that the more Quran you recite, the more blessed you are. You'll, you'll be able to perform and accomplish more things. So you might, don't do that calculation where you think, oh, Quran recitation is going to be, that's going to take me this many hours. Oof, this is a big, long word. The more Quran you recite, the more Allah blesses that day. And I speak from experience. And the less the Quran I said, the the waste, the more wasted that day is just gone. This is the barakah of the Quran. The same with the salah. That uh, nothing, when you say Allahu Akbar, and Ali Tantawi says this, what are you saying? He says Allah is greater than every the linguistic um, uh, construction is that Allah is bigger than everything else. And if you truly believe Allah is bigger, that's the takbir al-ihram, that's what makes everything else haram after that. That uh, if you truly believe that, then you believe it's more important than everything else. If you truly embrace that meaning, if you truly, uh, yeah, and you took that, you believed in that truly, and began back to that belief, not theoretical, true belief. It will have implication on your actions. That, yeah, this is a beautiful passage, but we'll go, th we'll cross through them. I don't think there's much left. How we are in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that we need Allah's guidance at all times. And we need guidance both at the broad level, general level, and at the detail level, the specific level. Uh, the need for repentance. All of this, why is, why is, um, uh, why is uh, this, why do we begin our salah with this istiftah, the words, fatiha, why fatiha, what is fatiha, sujood, sujood sirr salah, sujood is the true secret of salah. And the khatim of the rak'ah, the, 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 the uh, final aspect of a, of a unit of prayer, of a rak'ah. And they, everything before that is just an, is a preparation for it. Sujood is the salah, the secret of salah. Um, and it is the place where and this is the place where you visit Allah and you enter upon Allah. Everything else before that is, uh, is, is an introduction to it. This is referring to hajj, of course, and tawaf. Uh, and this is why the closest a servant is to Allah is during sujood. And the best dua you can make is during sujood. 
And since we are created from the earth, Allah created from the earth, it makes sense for us to return back to that in the sense that we're physically we're going back to it. Uh, because if we were left to our own desires and our own vices, he says we would have this sense of arrogance and kibber and so on. He says the sujood is to hum to to make you not to humiliate you, but to low to bring you back to bring you back to earth, literally, bring you back to earth, uh, bring you down to earth, um, because you are bringing yourself physically. You're putting the most valuable part of you, your head, your mind, your, your face, down on the floor, for whose sake? For the sake of Allah Jalla Jalla uh, beautiful so this returns you back to your state of which is the best uh, and healthiest state to be in I think there may be one or two more passages and then um, okay we've covered that what's this here uh, here I like this passage only it's a and side note completely Ibn al-Qayyim describes Abu Bakr as Sheikh, being Sheikh al-Islam I like that uh, because I, I am in, I do like take an interest in okay when did these titles come about? Uh, so yeah, Sheikh Al Islam Abu Bakr. Well, it's funny we talk about Sahaba. We sometimes I've heard a lot of people say say Yudinazay and so on, but a lot of time we just like Omar, Abu Bakr, uh, Ali, Uthman, and it's nice and it's, and this is something about that, and it's something about how we've become Ajami, we've become. F- f- foreigners if that makes sense in the sense that nowadays especially our like everyone but you know we like titles doctor sheikh blah 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 imam ustad and we say umar and ali and you know we it's, it's it's how we've changed subhanallah um yeah about the prophet says prayer no i'm okay i think that's it wallahu alam okay Ah uh, yes, how many rakat did the Prophet do? He used to pray four rak- sunnah rakat. How many? Four before Dhuhr, two after Dhuhr. Uh, he never prayed any sunnah prayers before Asr. He used to pray two after Maghrib and two immediately after Isha and two before Fajr. So altogether, we have 17 obligation, obligatory prayers, 12 sunan. Okay, that brings us to 29. And then he would وسلم, pray 11. As Qiyam Layl. Altogether, then he would pray 40 rak'at in a day. These are 40 rak'at. This was his word always. Um, no. So, I, and that's it. That brings us to the end of the book. Jazakumullah um, khair. Any comments, questions, or should we call it a day? Yarp. Next book we said uh, is a research book. And the Risala Fi Sigh Alhamd, followed by Zal Ma'ad, which Allah alam how long that will take. I mean, two, three sessions. And then followed by Uddat al Sabirin. Unmute, unmute. I was waiting for permission first. Jazakallah <laughs> uh, khair. Uh, what I wanted to mention is there is a book, and I think I've shared it with you before. I don't, I don't know if there's an if it's available in PDF. Dawq uh, al and Ibn al Qayyim. So it's not an actual publication by Ibn al Qayyim, but uh, someone compiled, uh, it, it took extracts from certain works of Ibn al Qayyim 
I think some of them from this book as well to show us how he uh, how he saw the Salah and as you mentioned the section in terms of right from the beginnings Dua al-Istiftah and then al-Qiyam and then al-Ruku'ah and all of the actions and he tells you in in beautiful form how um, how what what a person should focus on when he is in these um, actions so I, I don't think this is part of your program because it's not a, a book written by Ibn al-Qayyim front to back in terms of that he put as one publication but it's a compilation of some of his works so it would be nice if uh, just to tell people about it and if, if anyone can read in Arabic it's, it's a very nice short read thank you for the for the benefit uh, I, in terms of English translations, as I said, this book, as far as I recall, is available in translation. But the translation is, I'm not sure, I mean, it's one of these um, uh, translations that I'm not sure as to the quality of. But where we, what, we do, what we do have in lieu of, of the Arabic text here is the text that is available as a PDF in a dimension of Salah. So you can Google that. The other thing I would recommend is the Sheikh uh, al-Albani's Prophet's Prayer Described. Uh, we said at the outset that Al-Albani praised this book. Uh, but Al-Albani's Prophet Prayer described is, is, is a very good book. It's a very good book. It's a foundational text, by the way. But not maybe not anymore, Yani. But once upon a time, <laughs> to be Salafi, <laughs> you had to read this book. Why? Because um, for many reasons. But it's a, it's a good book. It's a very good book, actually. It's a very, very good book. And Al-Bani, rahimahullah, did a, th a thorough job. Not to say that everything he did or everything he said or every opinion he adopted is correct. That's uh, Allah Azza wa Jal refused to perfect any book except his as a Shafi, rahimahullah, taught us. Tayyib, um, khair. If, uh, if there are no further comments or questions or anything, I uh, leave you in Allah's care and uh, what we should endeavor to do between now and uh, the next session is at least try and pray one prayer uh, bearing in mind uh, sort of the some of the stuff we've discussed today uh, leave all the dry and the abstract stuff and the technical issues that were not of much concern to us but that spiritual side that um, you know, let's do two rak'at at least that we can send to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah Azza wa says, okay, I'm going to accept that. Um, that's sort of, uh, that, let's let's make that our sort of homework, inshallah ta'ala. And Allah Azza wa Jal al-Muwaffiq and tawfiq lies with him. We ask Allah Azza wa to enable us to to uh, to do things that please him. Barakallahu feekum. And uh, hopefully see you next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.